This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. Ryan's on break for the holidays, but we'll be back next time. This week on Parsing Science, we look back at some of our favorite conversations from 2017. Clips of our guests, many never before aired, are grouped according to six themes that emerged over the year. The methods used for collecting data, crowdsourcing data collection, the challenges of doing science, collaborating on research studies, scholarly writing, and publishing one's findings. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to parsing science. Carl Sagan said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We begin our look back at Parsing Science's guests from 2017 by hearing how some of them went about setting up their studies to generate such evidence. First up is Alice Gorman, a senior lecturer at Flinders University, who spoke with us about the archaeology of outer space. In this clip, she discusses her current research into how human culture affects space travel. We're actually far more accustomed to adapting to to variable gravity than we think we are. And the work, um, my recent experimental work on this has been in amusement parks where people are able to take rides that create different gravity environments. And they're done for the thrill, but it, it also means that, you know, we're actually not as unused as we think we are to stepping outside of the gravity created by just walking on the surface of the earth into these different environments. And I think this is really interesting stuff. I'm kind of working on a a half serious theory about um, humans as, I'm hesitant to almost say it, it's it's more it's more a logical device to try and understand the role of gravity in human culture. But you know, there's the theory of the aquatic ape. Just a quick interruption here to explain that the aquatic ape is a theory first popularized in the 1960s and 70s that our early ancestors may have descended from trees to search for food along seashores, explaining the origins of our upright posture. Which um, is recently being reassessed. So I'm not saying that I have any strong thoughts one way or another about that theory. But but if you consider human adaptations to different gravities from birth um, through different places and environments on Earth, um, we're maybe not so unaccustomed to this as we're led to believe. And I just think it would be interesting to explore cultural responses to different gravities in that way. Children's playgrounds is also something I'm looking at in this regard. Tim Arrington, the meta-science manager at the Center for Open Science, discussed his work with Brian Nosek to increase the reproducibility of science. Here, he talks with us about the importance of incorporating outside expertise early in the design of their research. Getting more stats reviewers in to the design, that's only a good thing. That is the right time to get a biostatistician on board. That's when sample size matters. After the fact, it's a little too late. Before design, that's the exact time to consider all of those. Um, think about not just experts in the field, but also think about consumers of that. So pathologists you know, will very commonly 
always be consuming this literature. Clinicians, right? They're consuming this. They're taking this to the next step. They should probably be in, in consultation with, well, is this the best model? Is that the best endpoint? Because if we're not taking that into consideration and we remain very siloed and we don't get that input at design, I think what we end up doing is we get results and then they don't, oh, they, they may not be the best way that we would have done it. Um, and so then we have to do it again and again. And maybe not all of it pops out because once you do it a certain way that's you know maybe more clinically relevant, you don't get the same result. So then you don't publish it. And so then you get this very biased literature. Kim Rios of Ohio University joined us to talk about her research into how self-concepts and group identities may change how we look at the role of religion and science. In this clip, she talks with us about how and why psychologists sometimes use deception in their studies to conceal the true purposes of their research from participants. Social psychologists do lie to people a lot about what the purpose of the studies are. Um, and with MTurk, because we have a lot of seasoned participants who have taken tons of studies, we want to make the uh, description of what the study is about, uh, well, we want to make it believable enough so that they won't uh, be as suspicious as they might otherwise. What we do is essentially a funneled suspicion probe and debriefing, that's the term for it, um, where we start very broad and we ask participants, essentially, what do you think this study was about? And then we'll get more specific, uh, such as, do you think there was anything in this study uh, that may have affected your performance on another aspect of the study? Or do you think there was any purpose other than what you are originally told? Al Powers and Phil Corlett of Yale University spoke with us about their research into what auditory hallucinations can tell us about schizophrenia. Here, Al discusses an unforeseen side effect of their experiment, which involved pairing a checkerboard pattern with a barely perceptible tone while monitoring participants' brain activity. In order to make sure that this was a, to make sure, you know, to make sure that the stimuli were working correctly, I mean, I coded this thing from the ground up in MATLAB, and so... Um, you know, making sure that everything was working correctly um, in the guts of this program, you pretty much have to do this on yourself like a billion times. And um, so, you know, I, I spent God knows how many hours staring at checkerboards and listening for tones. And um, and yeah, no, when I see the checkerboard, I hear the tone a lot of the time. Um, so I, I, I've uh, since learned that I'm not the most reliable subject. Four of our guests from 2017 used Amazon's Mechanical Turk in their projects to recruit participants. Here, Harvard University's Adam Morris explains what Mechanical Turk is and the ways in which it's often used in research studies. So Amazon Mechanical Turk uh, is a, an online labor marketplace, um, as Amazon puts it, uh, where basically people go online uh, and researchers, it's not just researchers, I guess, anybody where you need uh, a task done by lots of people but it's something that like a robot can't do, right? That you only people could do. Uh, and so what you do is you post it on this on this website on Mechanical Turk, and you pay people to complete your survey or, or or play the game that you're studying or whatever. Next, Kim Rio speaks about the advantages and disadvantages of collecting data from MTurkers. It always makes me more comfortable in my results if I can replicate the general effects using, say, MTurk as well as a college student sample, because they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Uh, their college student samples are, well, notoriously homogeneous. They're all students of, well, relatively similar age, um, sometimes similar socioeconomic and political backgrounds. 
Whereas with MTurk, you get a little bit more demographic diversity, but uh, there are a, a lot of researchers have raised concerns about the quality of data and about, well, how do you know that uh, there's not just one participant who's taking this study over and over again? And we can check the quality of the data using, say, IP address checks and using a unique code that participants are given at the end of the study that they have to put into the computer after they're done to ensure that it's not just the same person. Um, and then also, if they're doing the study online uh, from their home computers, we don't know, for instance, whether uh, they got up to take a long break or whether they were just breezing through it. We can't control that as well as we can in the lab. But again, there are ways to look at the data to ensure quality. Like if there's somebody in the data set that takes a 15-minute study in three hours, we can pretty much safely assume, well, they probably took a nap or watched a movie. <laughs> um, Fortunately, there aren't very many of those participants at all. Up next, Ryan Kelly from the University of Washington discusses another benefit of using crowdsourcing to collect data, efficiency. Uh, one of the great things about uh, crowdsourcing, one of, the, one of the things that I was sort of surprised by and uh, in a good way, was how quickly you can get data back. We were able to get thousands of responses within like 48 hours, you know, or within a very limited amount of time. So uh, you can actually see data as the data is coming in. At Georgia Tech's School of Interactive Computing, Davy Park often uses MTurk workers in her research as well. Here, she talks with us about an unexpected surprise she encountered in her study of machine intelligence and computer vision. I should I should say that this project was so much fun to work on because, I mean, Turkers were having a ball creating all of these different scenes. We got so many positive comments back from them um, saying this is sort of my favorite set of hits that I've been doing. And a lot of people said that after I've had a long day at work, I come back to work on these just to kind of as a bonus to myself. And then you look at these scenes, you look at these descriptions, it's it, it often cracks you up. The 20th century industrialist Henry J. Kaiser once offered that problems are only opportunities in work clothes. There was no shortage of challenges that our guests faced and overcame in carrying out their studies. Here's Brian Nosick discussing what he sees as the challenges of doing good science, as well as how those obstacles might be best circumvented. Science is hard, and there's, there's so much complexity that, and we're studying problems that we don't understand. That, that's, of course, why we're studying them. And so we're going to make errors and we're going to make a lot of them uh, and we're not going to recognize them right away many times because it's just it's too complex a problem to know where the errors are and so the the there i guess there's two things that are solutions uh, one is the practical uh the concrete solution which is transparency uh is the solution for this which is if I recognize that I'm not going to be able to detect all of the things that are happening in my research, I'm not going to know what all the challenges are, then what I can best do to help identify where those errors occur is to make it as accessible as possible what I did and how I did it and what I found so that other minds can look at that and figure out where the gaps are, where the things are that aren't quite right. So that Tim doesn't have that problem of taking six months to try to figure out what happened, but rather can see exactly what I did and then work directly from that. The other part is a mindset challenge, which is, of course I wanna be right. 
of course, being wrong is something that scientists don't like the idea of. But if we sort of take seriously how science works, then we realize that we are all wrong about everything, right? Every, every scientific claim is wrong in some way. It's an approximation of how the world works. And it's not a completely accurate approximation. There are what, how science progresses is identifying what's wrong with our current models of the world and making them less wrong over time. And so one of the proactive ways that we can sort of embrace error is to recognize that everything we do is an error in some way. And when someone finds an error in my work, right, I could feel it's very threatening to make my things more accessible for others to find errors. But the opportunity there uh, is that if someone else finds something that I did wrong or suboptimally, uh, then my reaction instead of being, well, you're a jerk for telling me that, is to say thank you. Now I understand the problem better. Now I can do more because you have helped advance uh, us in, in further away from ignorance. Next, Phil Corlett spoke with us about the challenges he and Al Powers faced in matching the demographics of Claire audience schizophrenics to an unusual group of participants who sometimes also hear voices, voice-hearing psychics. It was somewhat challenging to find um, people for the Claire audience psychic group that matched the demographic um, qualities of the other groups. So, for example, many of the Claire audience psychics who volunteered their help uh, and were easy to find were uh, women um, in, in, in their middle ages. And um, that's typically not the case for uh, our, our psychotic patients. And there were also uh, race differences. So it was very, very easy to find uh, white middle-aged women for the psychic group. And it was more challenging to find younger African-American men uh, for the psychic group. Um, whereas the opposite is typically true for, for psychotic patients. Uh, not to say that, that, that um, you know, only people who are African-American receive psychotic diagnoses, um, but it was just more challenging to find uh, members that matched across the, the different samples. The University of Western Ontario's Laura Stevenson is part of a team that researches how the structures of electoral systems can shape support for female candidates. Here, she discusses how a follow-up study of that phenomenon played out. We're looking at this saying, hey, listen, all these myths about, you know, men not voting for women or women aren't going to do well or they're a disadvantage for the party, they're simply not true. And it's really interesting because um, when it comes to looking at female candidates um, in other systems, we took the idea behind this study and we transferred it to um, one of the Canadian provinces. And we were interested in seeing whether we see the same kinds of um, forces at work in a first-past-the-post system, where we were also giving them the opportunities to vote differently. And our data, again, we're not finished with the paper, but they're not showing the same results at all. Now, we're not seeing that women are disadvantaged, so that part is fair, but we're not seeing the same positive trajectory in support for women that we were all hoping slash expecting <laughs> to find. In our conversation with Alice Gorman, she shared how one commonly overlooked archaeological artifact has become something of a fascination of hers. I'm really sorry I'm going to have to bring up cable ties here. Cable ties are an artifact which I'm quite obsessed with. It's, it's slightly embarrassing, but anyway, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with them. So cable ties or zip ties, little bit of plastic produced in their millions. People use them every day, throw them away, don't even think about them. So they're kind of operating below the level of people's consciousness. 
but we can use them as from an archaeological perspective. We can look at cable ties for what they tell us about what people were actually doing rather than what they thought they were doing. And in many cases, people wouldn't even be able to say to you if you said, how did you fix this thing that was broken? They might not even think to say, I went to the shed and I got some cable ties and I tied the cable ties around it and da da da. Next, Davy Park talks about how the findings of research projects don't always yield results that support all of the aims that a scientist might have hoped that it would. I would say that when we uh, first, so after we collected the data set and we first um, started analyzing it, I think we were quite excited about uh, this idea of being able to come up with a new semantic similarity metric that would um, capture how similar two scenes are in terms of their meaning. Um, and that being sort of an interesting metric that we could then analyze to understand what it's trying to capture and things like that. Um, and I think that aspect didn't um, wasn't as fruitful as we hoped it would be. Um, so it's now sort of a, a smaller section in the paper. Um, and I think we do much better than what already existed. But we were hoping that by adding in a lot of these complex features, in addition to just occurrence of objects and co-occurrence and so on, um, we'll see a bigger and bigger gain. Um, but we didn't see as much of a gain. And we suspect that it might be because the data set wasn't all that large. I mean, 10,000 scenes made by humans is still a large data set, especially for back then. Um, but it's certainly possible that if we made the data set much larger, we would be able to capture this notion of semantic similarity much better than what we could in this paper. While the results of their research supported his team's predictions, Adam Morris expressed to us some trepidation about the ability of current models of cognitive science to explain human learning. When you actually think about people learning, they just don't look anything like these reinforcement learning algorithms. I mean, maybe, you know, what, what, these, what these algorithms do, right, is they slowly, after getting lots of rewards and punishments, eventually kind of converge on the right behavior for things. And maybe there's some cases where that's a good model of humans. But really, humans seem incredibly flexible. They, they can learn from single instances of things. They can learn uh, in really abstract domains. They just do all these kind of things which simple reinforcement algorithms, you know, which maybe are good for rats hitting levers, really don't, they really don't capture that kind of unbelievable power and flexibility of human cognition. Beatrice de Gelder of Maastricht University wondered whether the rubber hand illusion, in which participants watch a dummy hand being stroked with a brush while feeling identical brush strokes applied to their own real hand, might be enhanced when hearing emotional vocalizations. Here, she discusses the challenges of advancing cognitive neuroscience. This, for me, was a very straightforward idea to, uh, to, uh, to, to test. Unfortunately, it takes, of course, much longer than uh, uh, you expect. You say, well, let's do this experiment. Wouldn't it be fun to know what's going on? It would be great. Let's try this. Uh, and then, of course, once you're stuck, it takes a year and a half before you're there. And then uh, another six months before there's a journal that likes the paper. Without exception, our guests work collaboratively to develop their research and almost all co-publish their findings. Scott Halpern talked with us about the accuracy of ICU physicians' and nurses' predictions of the health outcomes of their patients. Here, he talks with us about a possible reanalysis of the data generated in his team's study with collaborators at the University of Pennsylvania. So we actually are um, establishing a number of collaborations here at Penn with faculty in our newly formed Institute of Biomedical Informatics. And uh, many of my current postdocs have 
far greater interests and expertise than I in machine learning and particularly in the use of natural language processing of electronic health records to guide uh, clinical predictions and clinical outcomes ascertainment. Uh, and I think there is a tremendous untapped potential uh, using those methods to improve healthcare delivery. Uh, I'm not sure that potential is uh, quite as big as the hype around that potential right now, but uh, it's, it's certainly substantial nonetheless. Tholeran Kolawali, a geoscientist with the University of Oklahoma, spoke with us about his research into how the reactivation of faults can lead to earthquakes where they've previously never been felt. Here, he talks with us about partnering with scientists based on their expertise. We partnered, my, myself and my, uh, my advisor, Dr. Estela Tequana, we collaborated with scientists in other schools. Um, our own expertise are gravity, aeromag, and structural geology, tectonics. And we had this other scientist in other schools like um, Dr. Sarah Stamps, um, she's at Virginia Tech, and she's she's a great expert in numerical modeling. And we also have Dr. Raphael Grandin in France, who is really good with INSAR. He has published a lot of papers on INSAR and has been getting a lot of good results. And then we have Dr. Abdusalam, who is a great tectonics guy. Um, we have Kumo Lesiani, who is in Australia, and he's really good with aeromagnetic um, data inversion, and then Dr. Shemangu is our local expert in Botswana. Next, Tim Arrington talks about his experiences coordinating with the lab that ran the preclinical cancer study that he oversaw. We'd, we'd actually compile that information and then, then try to find the lab. So we didn't want to find a lab that was going to do the replication until we kind of understood what it took. And this is where Science Exchange, from you were just hearing about from Elizabeth Irons, um, that's where her organization came into play. So we needed to find somebody who was going to do this experiment. Um, and Stephen works at uh, Noble Life Sciences, which is a, a contract research organization in Maryland. And they were a good lab for the type of experiments that had to be done, the, the details that we knew at least. And so we identified the lab, and then we'd say, hey, Stephen, can you do this for us? And he'd say, yes, you know, this is how much it, you know, costs, basically, because that's what a contract research organization does. And then we'd have him also look it over and say, well, can you do it exactly the same way it's said here? And, you know, there'd be some subtle differences. Maybe the instrument is different. Um, you know, maybe maybe just the, the, they can't do exactly the same procedure, so you have to change something. So there's this back and forth about what was done originally and what was going to be done to try to resolve what was necessary. Beatrice de Gelder told us that she's a strong believer in collaboration. Here, she tells us how this often works at her brain and cognition lab in the Netherlands. Well, usually I'm the one that has the crazy idea, and uh, somehow I convey it with enough uh, enthusiasm. And I have the kind of people who, who understand uh, the good part and the crazy part, and then we go for it. I mean, that's the, we've done that a number of other times. And it's good to have critical people around you because uh, you need to know whether things are feasible, etc., etc. Davy Park's collaborator in her efforts to train computers to recognize the semantic meaning within images was Larry Zitnick, an artificial intelligence researcher now working with Facebook. Here, she tells us about how the two of them first got connected. So I, I met Larry, I guess at this point, about 10 years ago, um, and I was doing an internship at Microsoft Research. That's where, that's where Larry was. Um, but I was not doing my internship with him. I was actually doing an internship in a different group 
And that internship was, um, that project was somewhat applied, um, even though it was in Microsoft Research. And so before um, accepting the offer, I was talking to my manager and I was expressing these concerns that I'm in the PhD program. I would ideally like to work on something that can give me more research exposure. And the project seems to be a little too applied for my tastes. Um, and so my manager said that if I were to accept this offer, um, he would put me in touch with three three other researchers at Microsoft in Microsoft Research to set up sort of weekly one-on-one -on -one meetings so that I could explore um, different research topics with them as sort of a compromise for the fact that the project was a little too applied for my taste. Um, and so one of those three researchers was Larry Zitnik, um, and that's how I met him. I had these one-on-one -on -one meetings with him every week um, through the summer. This was 2007. And in those conversations, I think we realized that our research interests um, had very high overlap um, and Larry was great. He's very enthusiastic. He's a lot of fun to work with. And so we started collaborating on projects um, since then from that summer. Benjamin Franklin's advice to scientists was that if you would not be forgotten as soon as you are gone, either write things worth reading or do things worth writing. Speaking about the writing and peer review process, Ryan Kelly relates a common experience among scientists, the dread of writing that often follows the jubilation of completing a successful study. Writing for scientists often falls by the wayside because it's the last in a very long series of steps about uh, going from when you conceived the project to going through the project and getting the data and then analyzing the data a million times and then writing it up. So by the time you've written it up, you're sick of it. So for me, I try and focus on, I try and have a target audience in mind. I say, okay, who do I want to be reading this and what do I want them to take away from it? And, and this paper in particular, our findings suggest that uh, if I can write it, it more in the form of a story, then that would be a good thing for everybody involved. So for, for me and for the reader uh, and for the journal, that's just a win for everybody. Negative feedback from anonymous or blinded peer reviewers is so reviled in academic circles that parody tell-all websites have sprung up in which researchers share particularly abrasive or inane comments. Kim Rios shared with us one such story. When we were trying to get this paper published, that process was at certain points a little bit frustrating, as the publication process often is. Um, we uh, ended up publishing the article in Social Psychological and Personality Science, which is a really good and relatively new journal in our field. But we did have a set of reviews that came back from a different journal, and one of the reviewers of this paper basically said, well, in addition to a few other things, I didn't really learn anything from this paper except that the stereotypes about Christians being bad at science are true. And I thought, what? Did you even read the paper? <laughs> um, since, we, uh, since we very clearly showed, well, no, the effects of the stereotypes are true. They emerge when the stereotypes are made salient, but not in these conditions where we remove the, we remove the stereotype. Of course, not all peer reviewers are so brusque. In this clip, Davy Park talks with us about the kind of questions she received when submitting her team's paper to IEEE's Computer Vision and Pattern Recognition Conference. Um, some of the questions that we got, um, one was actually what you asked me about whether the data set and the tools are publicly available for others to use, um, and they were even at the time. Um, another question was on, and this actually comes up in general in reviews on papers along these lines, 
of the extent to which the things that we learn from this um, specific domain of children playing in the park, in particular from these synthetic abstract scenes, to what extent those findings generalize to the real world for real applications that we might care about. Um, and we, we talked about that briefly. Um, yeah, so I think, I think as far as I remember, um, oh, and there was another question about um, extensions to video, which again is another question that you brought up about the temporal aspect. At the other end of the spectrum, researchers sometimes feel they've lucked out by getting very positive feedback from peer reviewers. Here, Adam Morris relates one such story from publishing in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Yeah, we had in both papers, we've had we had great reviewers, which is funny. So these are the two papers. I've only published two papers through peer review. But, but everyone always, you know, in both of these cases, for both these papers, we just had really great reviewers. I mean, people whose comments made the papers so much better. And so I have this kind of rose-eyed view of peer review. You know, it's like, you know, it's this really great process where people really care about your work and want to make it better. Uh, and, I, you know, I tell this to people, they just laugh at me and they're like, you know, just wait till you have your first reviewer, you know, who sends the like six word, you know, do better next time review. <laughs> Scott Halpern spoke with us about the kind of feedback that's probably more commonly received from peer reviewers. In his case, one differentiating the reliability or discrimination of his team's methods from its validity or calibration resulted in a rather pedestrian modification of the paper's title before getting published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. So uh, what happened in the review process was some of the members of the editorial team at the journal felt like we had missed an opportunity to explore what at least some people felt like was at least as important, if not even more important, which is calibration. And they had proposed some ways that we might try to explore calibration within our data and ask that we do that. We gave it some thought. We even ran some models. Um, but we ultimately decided that we didn't think that our data were really up to that task. And so, in a transparent way, we wrote back to the editors and explained that we recognize the re importance of uh, assessing calibration as well, that it was a conscious decision, not a lapse in our judgment, that guided our decision to focus on discrimination, and that we didn't think, for a variety of reasons, that the data that we had at our disposal, given the way we ultimately implemented the study, were up to the task of robustly evaluating cal calibration. So uh, the editors recognized the transparency and appreciated it, and the upshot was that we changed the title of the manuscript. I don't remember what it was initially going to be, but uh, as you know, it wound up being, I think it was originally going to be just accuracy of physician and nurse predictions for survival and functional outcomes six months after an ICU admission. And at the editor's request, we added it, added the word discriminative before the word accuracy um, to more specifically reflect that which we measured. And then we modified the discussion section to describe uh, the differences between discrimination and calibration and to highlight for readers that we really only focused on one, not the other. Tim Arrington shared his perspective with us about the trade-offs involved in taking or rejecting the advice of reviewers, no matter whether they come from blinded reviews, colleagues, or through preprints, the broader scientific community. 
especially in those high impact like science and nature cell papers, there's so much information in there now that I don't think it's really beneficial for us to wait until one team has collected years and years and years and years of work before it gets out there. I think it'd be much better to get little pieces out there and let many people tackle it from different angles because that's really what you're getting at is there's always going to be a next step. And so how do you do this trade-off between rewarding somebody for doing high quality work, but recognizing that that shouldn't require them to do so much that they're stifling the ability to get those results out there to the community because the community is going to have so many more questions than one research team is. John Ruskin said, be sure that you go to the author to get at his meaning, not to find yours. Laura Stevenson's study into how different electoral systems can influence votes for female candidates was published in the journal Politics and Gender. Here she talks with us about what led to her team's decision to do so. Well, we sought out Politics and Gender because it is a well-respected journal that seemed that it would be very interested in what we were putting forward. Um, because there, you know, our paper does make a, a clear statement about um, support for female candidates, and we just thought that, you know, the the audience who's really going to care about what we have here is at politics and gender. So, you know, we didn't want the study to be buried somewhere in some inconsequential journal, but at the same time, we wanted to make sure that it was going to reach the audience who would find it valuable. Ryan Kelly talked with us about an unexpected discovery that he made in researching and writing about science communication. I contacted our um, the, the University of Washington within the College of the Environment. We have a marketing communications team, and I bounced this off of them and said, hey, I think there might be a story here, but I'm not sure. What do you think? And they said, uh, yeah, we, we, think, we think there is a story. It's, it's worth doing. And so I, um, I drafted a, a press release. This is, I, had never, I had never done this before. So I wrote the press release, and I sent it to the University of Washington people uh, who do this kind of thing. And they said, uh, well, hey, this is, um, did we do something wrong? Why, you're doing our job. <laughs> and I said, no, no, no. I, I didn't mean to step on anybody's toes. I, I just thought uh, I wanted to give it a shot and I thought I would save you some work. And they said, oh, okay, well, great. Um, this is ready to go. Like we can use this. So I ended up writing, a pre this was, I guess, a meta lesson in science communication. <laughs> it was, I ended up, uh, for my own edification, writing a press release about a science communication paper and it, it sort of wrapped around itself there. Next, Scott Halpern speaks about the satisfaction he found in working with a group of undergraduates in his study of ICU patients. Uh, if you read the uh, authorship line carefully, you'll note that there are uh, four consecutive authors who have bachelor's degrees after their names. And uh, I'm thrilled to report that, that all four of them, uh, Aaron Delman, Anna Bueller, Saida Kent, and uh, Isabella Cifatelli, are uh, now all uh, pursuing medical school. And uh, their experience interacting with seriously ill patients and their family members in the context of this study uh, wasn't what got them into medicine, uh, or interested in medicine, I should say, but uh, I think was a formative experience uh, for them from both a clinical standpoint and, and of course, from a research standpoint. Uh, undoubtedly gave them lots of interesting things to discuss on the interview trail and uh, I hope it was a really formative experience for them. Davy Park's research with Larry Zitnick was published in the Proceedings of IEEE's Computer Vision and Pattern Recognition Conference. 
Here she tells us about the advantages of publishing their data sets and materials in addition to their findings. The whole data set is available, even the tools that we use to create, that we used on Mechanical Turk to create these abstract scenes, that's publicly available. So if anyone wanted to use our data set, they would be able to do that. If anyone wanted to create their own data set of a similar nature with these clip art objects, um, they'd be able to do that. And we have follow-up work that has even more complex and realistic clip art with many more objects, many more people, indoor and outdoor scenes. When studies generate enough buzz to be picked up by news outlets, sometimes they get sensationalized. Al Powers and Phil Corlett spoke with us about how they tried to avert such misrepresentations of their research. The Yale Press Office did a wonderful job in terms of getting this out there. We were actually really afraid in the first place that our results would be misconstrued, um, that uh, they would be um, somehow twisted to say, Yale proves psychics are real, for example, or, um, or that all psychics are psychotic, or, um, or that all people with psychosis are psychics, um, or, or something like that. Uh, there's, there's enormous potential for uh, these results to be twisted in a way um, that wouldn't exactly uh, be true to the science. And um, I think uh, in that way, uh, Yale and we were, were, were careful uh, to get out in front of it and make sure that what we think is actually really important about the study um, was available and, and, um, and clear to the general public. Although I might add that within about three days of the paper, the initial paper being out, we saw a page that said Yale proved psychics to be true. So right. despite the best intentions. <laughs> I know. Yep. <laughs> Lastly, Tim Arrington discusses the disparities that sometimes occur when submitting replication studies, such as the one he and Brian Nosek oversaw, for publication. There's a lot of different things that can be asked about, you know, you know, talking about the confounds more, you know, focusing more on how the two are different, maybe trying to find some technical issue that might have occurred with the replication. All those get raised when you don't see the same result. But when you get the same result, and this is, again, this is anecdotal, all of those differences that still exist, right, regardless of whether you got the same result or not, none of those really get raised, right? They, 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 they sometimes do, but usually those all get glossed over. And it's more of like, good job, you found the same result. And so that really kind of shows you this, this struggle that we have where um, if we're just doing peer review and we're just criticizing a study based on outcomes, we have our own beliefs, our own priors of what one should expect. And if they match onto it, we accept everything along with it. Even if even if it was a mistake, right? We could have had made we could have made a mistake, and nobody's really looking into it. But when you get something that's counter to it, that's when all those details start to matter. And the truth is, we need to shift that mindset and recognize that they matter all the time. We hope that you've enjoyed our look back at some of the conversations we've had over the year on parsing science. If you're interested in hearing even more, including material that we just couldn't fit into the episodes, be sure to visit parsingscience.org for even more unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Rafael Nunez from the University of California, San Diego's Department of Cognitive Science. He'll talk with us about his research into whether humans' understanding of numbers is a result of biological evolution or if it evolved through our language and culture. A lot of people, many mathematicians, but a lot of physicists in particular, um, believe, and this is not science now, it's beliefs, believe that mathematics exists independently of human beings. We hope that you'll join us again.